Oh, Father in heaven, we lift up our praises before you for good reason. Not just because this is a church and that's what we do when we gather in a place like this for liturgical or traditional reasons. But as we look in your scriptures, we see from the beginning of time you have revealed yourself as the great God and creator, designer and ordainer of all things. And we especially look to you in your great gospel this day when you intervened, Lord Jesus, in the course of history, sent your Son, Jesus Christ, came and bore our sins, died on Calvary's tree, was resurrected, now rules and reigns over all things, putting each enemy under his feet. Our God is greater. Our God is more powerful than the power of sin to condemn us to hell. Our God is powerful. You are stronger than the force of the grave to keep us if you set your spirit upon us and by the same spirit that raised your son from the dead, usher us into glorified newness of life in heaven eternal. Our God is higher. He is above. He is over, more powerful than any storm or calamity that would threaten us and uses these things, in fact, to point to His sovereignty over His creation. Our God is more powerful than the kings and rulers, the principalities and powers on this earth that try to usurp His throne. And each one repents or learns the lesson the hard way. May they repent in sackcloth and ashes before our God who is greater this day. And now as we bow ourselves, our hearts and our minds before the authority of Your Holy Word, we pray that your greatness and your authority, your power and your steadfast love would so move us that it would change our hearts to be more like Christ through the use of the means of the preached word this day. Root us and ground us in our faith and equip us for the calling of proclaiming your name unto the nations. In all that you might be glorified in this day might bring you maximum glory and honor and praise to your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a gracious gift we have in the Scriptures today. I'm so thankful that God has gathered us by His grace again to consider His Holy Word. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 will consider the chapter, 28 verses, by way of overview this morning. We'll cover more territory than usual, but I trust it will be food for our souls. The title of this morning's message is The Sanctuary Effect. And this title is drawn from the center of this psalm, which signals a shift in emphasis, a turning point for the author. But when I understood, he says in verse 16, or I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. So this morning we will consider the effects of the sanctuary of God for the heart of the faithful. The aim of today's message is to exclusively emphasize the medicines of grace for the sickness of the soul. God prescribes particular healing measures for particular illnesses of the soul, if you will. And Psalm 73 highlights these, and so let us glean from their effects and let us partake of them this day. With your Bible open to Psalm 73, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God today? Would you stand with me and listen as we hear the word of God proclaimed in our ears from this, a psalm of Asaph, in book 3 of the Psalter, Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. 
my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in essence, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16, But when I thought to know... How to understand this? It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. You, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the holy word of God. You may be seated. Similar themes to Psalm 73 are featured in other Old Testament passages. You may, you may recall a few of them. If you just turn 73 around, 37, it's interesting because that psalm actually contains the exact same idea and perennial question. Also, Psalm 49, two psalms that we've considered in, in the past, wrestle with these seemingly contradictory truths, what God has spoken and then the scenarios that play out before us. The book of Job is also among these examples. This one is quite an extended treatment of the difficulty, the heart, the difficulty of wrapping your mind around the way God works in spite of the things we think ought to be, namely the wicked prospering and the righteous perishing. The author wrestles in Psalm 73, as these other passages do, with this perennial, this important question. How could a good God allow me to suffer while his enemies prosper? And the first person pronoun, the me in this case, would be a believer. How could a good God allow a believer, a follower of you, to suffer, of him to suffer while his enemies prosper? A good question indeed. This question would have proved especially difficult at this time in covenant history. We see at this time the, when the, as the progressively unfolding nature of special revelation 
had not been fully revealed, had not fully revealed the degree of emphasis on the spiritual and eternal nature of covenant blessings and punishments or sanctions, such as we understand with the benefit of the gospel and proclamation of new covenant fulfillment. In other words, the Bible lays out kind of a step-by-step unfolding process. Some have compared it to seed into fullness of tree. If you begin in Genesis, you have a seed form often. If you go to Revelation, the seed has blossomed to the full bloom of special revelation. These ideas of the primary focus of the covenant that God makes with His people resting upon its eternal ramifications, its eternal consequences for salvation and for punishment is a, de- is a developing idea, at least in the minds of those who are following the Lord and trying to understand His ways. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then on into our section today, David, and those who wrote alongside him in the Psalter, the patriarchs of old would have been far more likely to associate temporal, that means in this life, physical, temporal blessing with covenant obedience, and conversely, temporal punishments for unfaithfulness. It would be a great step of faith indeed to wrestle with the apparent opposite scenarios playing out in one's experience. In other words, Lord, the heart of the psalmist cries, I can't make sense of this. I have been striving to keep the terms of the covenant, yet I am poor. I'm surrounded by enemies. It seems like everything I touch turns to dust. Meanwhile, our pagan neighbors, it seems everything they touch turns gold. They are comfortable, happy, prosperous, influential, powerful. They actually control my life in many ways. How can this be? It seems to be different than your promises. It seems to be contradictory to the expectations based on my as of yet understanding of you. Now, as we consider the psalmist wrestling with this thing, with these uh, scenarios playing out in his experience, it emphasizes to us that the Spirit of God is therefore vividly evident in the soul of, the, of Asaph, presuming he's the author, the psalmist. The Spirit of God is therefore vividly evident in the soul of the psalmist as he, the Spirit, leads him, the psalmist, to the sanctuary, to greater understanding of the ways and of greater understanding of the ways and means of God. It becomes clear to him in his wrestling in his psalm as it reaches its conclusion, its clarity, and its summary, and its purpose. It becomes clear to him, as it should be to us, that the Lord often shapes his people into his image through the tempering grace of affliction. What is tempering? Tempering is that process whereby a weak and inferior metal is heated under extreme conditions in the fiery place, the furnace, until its molecular intrinsic quality is changed to be the ideal hardness so that the task for which it is purposed is accomplished most effectively, most efficiently. You take a piece of steel, shape it into the blade of a knife, and you place it under these conditions, and that steel can be hard and sharp and bear a true edge according to the intention. And this is an analogy to help us understand the crucible that God has designed whereby He shapes us into His image. It's the tempering grace of affliction. 
There's a reason why he sends his servant through the difficulties of even wrestling with the wicked culture and individuals around him. So we have this, recognizing the tempering grace of affliction. Meanwhile, on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, he fattens the wicked for the day of slaughter through the judicial hardening of prosperous ease. A cow is fed on a farm. The greatest of meals, he gets everything he wants, but there's a purpose for which the rancher feeds his livestock. If it's a cow that's raised for meat, cattle that's raised for food, indeed, what is the purpose? He wants that cow as fat and as healthy as possible so that when it is brought to the slaughter, its meat is most valuable to him. The cow might boast in his comfortable conditions, but he's just a beast and he does not know the destiny for which he is being prepared. And again, this is an analogy to help us understand the judicial hardening of prosperous ease. Judicial meaning the judgments of God. Has it occurred to you that oftentimes an easy life, wealth, prosperity, and comfort can actually be the justice of God bringing punishment on the heart of man to harden him so he never cries out for mercy, so he never seeks salvation, so he never cries out for God to rescue him because this ease of life, these wealthy conditions, this prosperous existence, in fact, is a blind, ends up being, having a blinding effect on his spiritual sight to know that he stands on the precipice of hell itself. Why should I cry for salvation when it feels like heaven right now? I'm enjoying this. Thank you. Saved from what, you might ask? Well, sometimes the tempering grace of affliction brings to our understanding this great truth. If you think this life is bad, wait until the next. Or if you think this life is good, you've seen nothing yet. The true Uh, The true field or stage, if you will, the true reality of where God's promises ultimately play out is not fully in this life, but in the next. And so these are the lessons of Psalm 73. Let us consider them in context. Under this heading, four frames of mind that shape Psalm 73. The psalmist walks us through four frames of mind which he interacted with his life under which or through which he interacted with his life circumstance. Number one, we'll begin with discernment. Number two, disillusionment. Number three, delusion, and this would be actually the wicked, frame of mind of the wicked. And number four, doxology, or worship, glory, glorifying the Lord. Discernment, disillusionment, delusion, and doxology. Let's begin with discernment. The psalm begins with its conclusion. Psalm 73, 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. The author is emphatic, he is clear, he is certain, he is resolved. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We can also divide, I mean, if we wanted to, we could divide up the psalm in a number of ways, but one is the tenses, one could be the tenses, and we note in this First verse, it's a present tense conclusion. I testify to you right here and now, God is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. And then in the next verse, the tense changes. He goes from present to past. 
says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. My steps stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So if the first is a proclamation or a profession, the conclusion of the matter, God is good to Israel. The second section, all the way from verse 2 to 22, could be considered a confession. I admit Honestly, I divulge, these are the things that I wrestled with before I came to this conclusion. And then there's a third tense which switches to future and verse 23 and following. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You uphold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now looking forward to heaven eternal, the ultimate promises of the only true Uh, beyond breakable doubt covenant. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. So earth and heaven are in view. So in the frames or in the uh, uh, kind of shape of this psalm, we go from present tense, then a past tense confession, present tense profession, past tense confession, and then future tense adoration or worship. Secondly, under discernment, let us see... um, or let us move to the next. Uh, uh, let's move to the next category, frame of mind. There's a little bit of. Uh, l- let me just draw your attention to the shape of this psalm. It goes from discernment to disillusionment by confession to delusion, then back to disillusionment and discernment. So if you follow me here, there's something of a shape, as the author leads us through his frame of mind and then back to his point of conclusion. It's as if he goes down, and then up. He leads us, as it were, in his confession through his sort of backsliding. And then there's a point of repentance. And then he leads us through his process of thought up unto glory. And this basic shape of a downward trajectory and then intervention is meaningful in the shape of the psalm. First he opens with discernment. Then he begins to divulge how he was confused, disillusioned. Then he spends some time in the delusion that the wicked live in, and then he moves back to a disillusioned state and confesses it, turns in his heart to discern once again the truth, and finally closes with worship. So if you kind of follow that shape of the psalm, it's something of a poetic device to lead us as hearers through this path of processing the truth of God. So we then move from discernment to disillusionment. Loss of footing. Verses 2 and 3, moving to his past and confession, our psalmist says the following, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I almost lost my footing, he confesses. Think of the pictures, the metaphors in Scripture that describe the way of salvation. A straight and narrow path, few there be that find it. Whereas Christ says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Uh, In the book of Proverbs, uh, the Lord will make straight, straight the paths for those that lean on Him. But we find that the fool is disordered and confused. We find that the Lord makes the psalmist's feet like the hind's feet of a deer so he can cling to the rocky places. And though it's precarious if he didn't trust the means that God supplied, 
The Lord keeps him anchored even in the day of danger. Meanwhile, on the other side of the coin, those who trust themselves, who look to their own reasoning alone, who do not follow the prescribed path of the law of God, their feet slip. They think they have it all figured out. They boast with great confidence. Hey, it's working for me. I'm actually pretty prosperous and comfortable. Never been happier. Look at the success laid out before me. This seems like a good path. It's my best chance at a great future, given this great career opportunity or whatever else might distract us by way of temptation to pursue a way apart from God's word. The wicked man charges headlong, and little does he realize that the path he's on has quicksand under his feet. It's like an avalanche on the shelf of a mountain. It's like a, a, a way made along a cliff that will soon crumble, and he does not realize. He loses his sure footing if he doesn't trust in the Lord. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, stumbled like those who trust in the wealth and the abundance of their own possessions. As for me, he goes on, verse 2, my feet had nearly slipped. Slipped like those who trust themselves and not the straight and narrow path of righteousness that God lays out before His people. This metaphor of stability or sure footing versus the slippery place of unbelief ends up establishing something of a poetic device in and of itself. Now, what led the psalmist to this slippery way where he tripped for a moment, lost his footing, and almost careened headlong to his own destruction. In verse 3, we see the problem. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Some have scoffed at the Ten Commandments. They wonder, why is thou shalt not covet one of the Ten Commandments? Psalm 73 answers clearly and emphatically why thou shalt not covet. Covetousness, enviousness, looking at the prosperity of others and then judging yourself uh, entitled to what they have or accursed to some degree or of, of a lesser position such that you wish and you won't be content and your joy is deferred until you gain their position, it's a self-destructive, spiritually suicidal frame of mind. Thou shalt not covet for a reason. Thou shalt not covet because you will stumble and you will lose your sure footing on the sovereignty of God. God, I trust you, though I'm suffering now, that you have purpose in this affliction. I trust you that it is the tempering grace that will change me into your image. Or you could say, God, it's not fair that I should endure such hardship when I'm doing my best to follow you when my neighbor over here or this famous person over there this politician, this celebrity, or this course of action over here, this lifestyle, this philosophy is so lucrative. What is the problem here? The problem isn't all those external factors. Those are in the hands of a sovereign God who knows how to fatten a calf for slaughter as sure as He knows how to temper His people by the grace of affliction. The problem is not with the Lord. The problem is with your heart and mine. If we should almost stumble and as if, it, as if we were walking on a precipice, begin to slip by being envious of the arrogant and the prosperity of others and think it's just not fair. I cannot 
believe that God would have a good reason for such a thing. How could a good God allow me to suffer while his wicked, rebellious enemies prosper? As we consider this, we see a sort of further development of disillusionment. I'm moving forward through the text in verses 13 through 14. Perhaps we should go to discernment. So again, if we're kind of following this path, I apologize if it's confusing. We've moved from discernment in in verse 1 to disillusionment in verses 2 and 3. And as I told you, this kind of digression, we now move to delusion in verses 4 through 12. Now he's speaking of the wicked themselves. They have a delusional frame of mind. Delusion is believing a lie, being handicapped and captive and absolutely in bondage to something other than the clear reality, the inarguable truth that God has laid out and instead trading that for a wicked, a, a wicked lie. And so we see this in verse 4. For they, speaking of the wicked, have no pangs until death. Their bodies are flat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. For their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Among these are the wicked. Among these are the wicked. Listen, always at ease, they increase in riches. It's gone from discernment, disillusionment to delusion. This is the lifestyle and the mindset of the wicked who are satisfied in the temporal realm who increase in riches, are fattened for the day of slaughter, and care only for their own comfort, themselves, ease of life. Now, there, as we uh, see this development in the text, we see the different categories of status that the wicked seek. They're interested in maintaining the best possible felt conditions for their body. And so they care about the external. They pursue things and they brag in the fact that they have no pangs until death. They can afford plastic surgery when they're aging. They can take intermediary uh, measures through the technology that the medical community affords them and through an obsession with the external form, through exercise and otherwise, until their bodies are fat and sleek as possible. Uh, Fat seems a little strange to us. We don't necessarily try to add pounds, but it's the idea of being comfortably provided with everything that you desire. If I want it, I can have it. This is the idea. So the status that is sought by the delusional mind who's lost his footing and is on the slippery slope of fatness unto slaughter cares only for his body, furthermore his mind. They are not troubled as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't trouble themselves with what will I, where will I go when I die. They conveniently put that out of their mind. They care little for the reality that every man must die and after that the judgment. 
They seek to block it out with entertainment. They buy insurance policies for themselves at a premium price to purchase, as if they could, peace of mind. And to the extent they have it, it is but a delusion. Thus, in body and mind, the deluded state of preferable status is expounded. Verse 6, therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their personality, their persona, their action in the world is governed by a self-centered ideal. Their pride is what they wear. They want to show off themselves and showcase their abilities, their ambitions, their acquisitions, and their relationships that set them a little above their neighbors. The context of the Joneses is neck and neck until someone purchases something a little beyond what his neighbor has. His neighbor covets it, and this is considered a prideful advance to the one who purchased this material possession just to set himself a little above his neighbor. And so he garnishes himself with the sinful self-centeredness of self-exaltation and pride. Meanwhile, violence covers them as a garment. They'll spare no expense And they won't consider the ethics in their pursuit because they become so driven to increase their status by their actions, by their motivations, by their ambitions. Thus, we continue in verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their heart overflows with follies. And so this state that they pursue, the unbeliever, in seeking himself and himself alone, his self first and foremost, begins to have an effect all the way to the core of his being, so that which he perceives and takes in in his sensory experience is only that which benefits him. His heart, the deepest affections, the place in which he dreams and wishes for something more, That secret heart of longing overflows with follies, with foolishness, with trivial pursuits, with idolatry. So from body to heart, the unbeliever becomes corrupt in fatness. They scoff and speak with malice, verse 8, loftily. They threaten oppression. They've set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, people turn back to them. And it goes on to categorize, to catalog this delusion. It's a delusion of body, mind, personality, heart, speech, and even their peers. It says that people turn back to them. They find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? It seems like it's working for them. I guess I will share in their lifestyle. And so this is the delusion that we see the psalmist expounding. He is graphically portraying the dangers of a heart who does not put the Lord first and acknowledge His tempering grace of affliction. By what means do the unbeliever gather for themselves this best-case scenario existence? They do it through pride, through violence, through follies, through malice, through oppression, through strutting tongues. This week I was checking up on an old band that I used to enjoy their music, and I had been several years. And they did write some songs that I think are glorifying to the Lord, and I was pleased to find that they were still writing songs about redemption. Well, in the YouTube universe, there was a little tagline that caught my eye. It said, you know, so-and-so woman pop star sings with so-and-so Christian band. So I thought, well, that's interesting. It seems like a contradiction in terms. Clicked on it, and sure enough, 
a modestly dressed young woman was helping out on background vocals, and it really was beautiful. The lead singer was worshiping, and all this was taking place, believe it or not, on a late-night television show, and it brought back a few memories. Well, the interesting thing about this picture was that modestly dressed young woman in the back is now super famous, extremely well-to-do, culturally first-name basis, household name, individual, and if I said her name, you would know it immediately, but you would know her name for a different reason. Not for a woman who tried to worship the Lord and, and, and present herself as godly, but for someone who sold her soul to the industry's promise of fatness, of sleekness, sleekness. And so her heart began to overflow with follies and her entire life, public persona and career are now caught in the quagmire, the quicksand, the morass, and the slippery slope of perversion and petty infighting such that any responsible parent in this room would block all her videos. You don't want your children to see such a thing, lest they grow up and pursue the same promises. This is just one area of life where we see the disparity between the narrow path, the band that I mentioned to you before, they're pretty obscure. If you check on their videos, it's just few and far between compared to the other path. This was the path to notoriety, to success, to fame. Everybody knows this individual. When they write the history books of those who shaped the culture of the 2000s, you know, the first 20 years of this millennium, her name might appear. But what has she sacrificed to gain it? She sacrificed the tempering grace of affliction, the obscurity of the path where few find it, but leads to glory. The purity that is more and more a part of our life as we realize our sin, confess it, and walk in the sanctifying graces of God's word and law. It's dangerous, everyone, in this room. You may think yourself immune. After all, I don't think I could be a celebrity, even want that type of thing. But your feet can slip and stumble, thinking it's not fair that other people prosper while you are trying to scrape pennies together for your next bill to be paid. It's dangerous. It's dangerous out there unless we embrace the grace that God supplies. Count the cost and follow the Lord. Finally, under delusion, there's a certain philosophy that's operative among the wicked. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And it seems like it's working for them might be the way that, uh, to describe the influence of the deluded. They seem to have a point. After all, they're prosperous, are they not? And so they even influence other people to join them. This is the path of success. How can God know if He allows them such, a, uh, such a wealthy and prosperous and uh, comfortable circumstances? Uh, is there knowledge in the Most High? Is the Lord powerful? Does He see? Does He know all? Yes, He does. But it is dangerous if we would look at the state of affairs and the wickedness of our culture and ever be tempted to doubt. So this is the delusion. This is the bottom of the barrel. Confessing, is there even a God? And thinking maybe He doesn't know or He's not powerful to do anything. At the bottom of this barrel, at rock bottom of psychological and spiritual despair, our author begins now to take a turn and to rise from the pit of, dis of disillusionment. And he says now, by way of further confession in verse 13, 
All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Notice, he says, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. All in vain have I kept my heart clean. What good is my quest for holiness when it isn't rewarded in this life? That's the cry. And he's upset and frustrated at this. He's tempted to say as much and to say, forget it, it's not worth it. But the Lord caught him before he stumbled. The Lord caught him before he utterly slipped. And he corrects himself and says, if I, had, if I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And as we see him climbing out now of this temptation to join the deluded, we find him counting the cost of following the Lord. Counting the cost of following the Lord includes a whole different value set, setting before you the promises of eternal glory and shunning the temptation of temporal gain. Now, this quest to know the Lord and to follow Him, this Christian life, it is not affordable if you take into account this life only. If you count yourself a Christian in this room, and you have counted the cost and think, I am going to be a Christian for what it promises me in this life, let me submit to you, you will not stand. Sooner or later, there will be a time when this life is so difficult and the tests and the trials are so excruciating that if you don't have hope invested in the next, in eternity, you will not stand in your commitment to follow Christ. The true believer understands that that which Christ died to purchase, your soul and the blessings that attend your salvation will be fully manifest in the next life. We will all, Lord tarries, and under the normal course of life be aging, and as our aging, and as we age, the blessings and the energy and the opportunities and all of the ambition and the hopes and the dreams and the fulfilling lifestyles and the self-indulgence that we could accrue for ourselves gets less and less and less. How will we continue when our eyes grow dim with age? How will we continue strong when we struggle for breath in our lungs? When our mental faculties begin to fail us, God forbid, with Alzheimer's or worse. If we have our hope invested not in this life and the temporal blessings, but the absolute proof positive in Christ's resurrection that we will be resurrected with Him unto glory, we will endure. We will endure. And we climb out of the pit of disillusionment by remembering the promises that are granted to us in the next life. And so our author continues. He moves now to discernment. So he's climbing out of the pit of delusion to disillusionment and then now to discernment. He says, and what has made the difference, verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I can't make sense of this great disparity. Again, the perennial question, 
How could a good God allow me, his follower, to suffer while his enemies prosper? I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until, and here is the turning point of the psalm, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. There's your discernment. The title of this message is The Sanctuary Effect. When the psalmist goes into the sanctuary and embraces everything the sanctuary represents, it gives him a new frame of reference in his mind, a brand new perspective. It gives him a vantage point that allows him to see from an eternity worldview, an eternity bird's eye view, if you will, the purposes of God with the problem, in the problems of this life. What does the sanctuary represent? Several things. This is a poetic way of emphasizing in the text the means of grace, that which God provides His people for communion with Him. It also, the sanctuary at this time, the temple or tabernacle worship, represented a sacrifice for sins. It represented atonement. It represented the law, the Word of God. After all, the law of God was laid up right there in the sanctuary, in the Ark of the Covenant, in that most holy place. So when he goes to the sanctuary, when he embraces the means that God supplies, when he sets his mind and affections upon the grace that God has granted him, the sacrifice that he has provided for his sins, the atoning promise of his uh, sin covered by the sacrificial blood of the Lamb and by the Word of God that proclaims these things as absolutely true and sees beyond the vision that we are limited to in this life to the glorious eternal hope for the believer and the eternal judgment for the wicked, as he does this, his eyes of understanding are opened and he discerns the truth. His attitude, his heart, his affections, his hope, his worship, his profession, his conviction, his consistency of thought and heart and mind and action are changed in that moment of embracing the truth and the corrective that the sanctuary brings. Why do we gather here weekly? In part because of this. We share with each other as witnesses, according to Hebrews 11 and 12, the manifold power of God to resurrect sinners unto newness of life and wash away our sins in the blood of Jesus Christ. And we sing songs of these themes to remind our hearts that when we fix our attention on these eternal fixtures of reality, it gives us grace to endure the tempering afflictions of tomorrow morning when we wake up. When we set our mind upon the atoning blood of Jesus Christ and remember with a first love attention to the details of what God has provided in Christ, His only Son, the propitiatory, Lamb of God sacrifice for our sins, it changes our mind. And we realize in our salvation, we have greater riches than the estate of any multi-billionaire, that the estate that a trillionaire, a billionaire could boast. Reject the private island, only that I may have Christ. Only that I may enjoy eternal communion with Him. These are the means that God supplied him, the psalmist, to change his heart and mind. He understands two categories as discernment rushes into his soul. Listen as we continue verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, and you'll notice a parallel. 
He says, my feet, verse 2, had almost stumbled, my feet, my steps nearly slipped. Ultimately, he gained his sure footing in the sanctuary. However, those who do not embrace the means, who do not darken the door of the sanctuary, who do not seek the substitute sacrifice for their sins, truly, they are set in slippery places, cattle fattened for the day of slaughter. You make them fall to ruin, he says, verse 18. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. What is he saying? He's saying that there's two categories in view that must be seen in order for discernment to be sound. One is the temporal category. The other is the spiritual. From the eternal vantage point, taking into account this life and the next, we realize that this short existence here is but a vapor. It slips from our grasp. It's unattainable. It's a sneeze in the night. It's a mist in the wind. This life is nothing from the vantage point of eternity. But from the vantage point of an animal, of a beast, this life is everything. Think of it. What does a dog care about? His next meal, running around in the woods, uh, getting petted, uh, you know, embracing life as it comes. But does a dog have a 401k? Does a dog bring his grievances to the courts of justice in order to settle a dispute? Does a dog uh, seek repentance for uh, lusting after his neighbor's puppy chow? and then is content with the perina that he has in his bowl. No, he's a brute beast. He cares nothing but the temporal, what this day, what this life can promise him. And that is like the unbelieving soul. The unbelieving soul from the vantage point of the temporal only, from the vantage point of the physical only, for them eternity is a concept they don't grasp. It doesn't exist. Now, we live in a culture like this. Why does everyone care so much about looking young? Why does everyone care so much about free health care? Why does everyone care so much that they have a job and they're willing to vote for any number of corrupt politicians to promise them what would be temporal gain, health care, job, social security, um, a peaceful society, whatever the hope is that we place in the hands of, a, of an of an increasingly tyrannical government. Why is this the case? Because eternity isn't in view. We're living like dogs, like beasts, like animals. We care about our next meal. We care about the temporary. We and we're willing to sacrifice ethics, morals, the future, the glory of God, and the hope of eternity in order to attain it. That our bowl may be filled with puppy chow until the day we're buried and embrace the flames of hell, fat and sleek. That's the attitude of the culture that we live in. That's not enviable. There's nothing to be gained by embracing any of those values. Enter the sanctuary of God. And if it's more difficult in a day of growing evil, enter the sanctuary more often. Go to the gospel more often. Dig deeper in your times of Scripture. Sing songs, memorize Scripture more. That's the anecdote. That's the antidote. That's what will keep you. In closing, our author 
has climbed out of the pit of disillusionment and now he's sitting on the mountain of worship of doxology. And our psalm closes, verses 23 and following, with these glorious truths of proclamation. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God, the sanctuary as it were. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Doxology, closing worship, this frame of mind is like an unassailable fortress. This is the highest place of spiritual security. In this frame of mind, he will not be distracted and deceived by the promise of temporal gain. He will be secure against what the enemy will tempt him with. Just like Jesus Christ, when the enemy said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world if you but bow and worship me. And he said, my bread, my sustenance, my hope, my foundation, my security is in the word of God. To His glory, I will live to His glory. If His glory is my chief end and my affliction brings Him praise, so be it. I can lay down my life, take up my cross, follow Him to the hill of Calvary, only that He may be glorified. Under doxology, he celebrates the steadfast love of the Lord. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Remember the sure-footed path that he has found now? He almost stumbled and he almost slipped. But what do we see right here? We see that the Lord has grabbed his hand and held it tight. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. The Lord has grabbed his little one and steadied him. Like a toddler learning to walk, every parent knows that when you see them take that stumble, your impulse is to grab them and steady them just a bit. Or perhaps to hold their hand while they cross a bridge where if they could fall you know, to, to a dangerous place, and, uh, to the right or to the left on a dangerous path or something of the like. And this is the picture. The steadfast love of the Lord has become his refuge and his hope. It says, you guide me with your counsel. Your right hand has given me direction by the proclamation, by the truth, by the principles, by the authority, by the law of your holy word, your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. This path of following you with the steady uh, influence of your word will lead me unto riches beyond compare. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. Secondly, he celebrates reconciliation, verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And you notice the heart of repentance. He desires something on earth besides the Lord, almost. For a while he was slipping Oh, why can't I be at least half as prosperous as my wicked neighbors? It almost makes me doubt your goodness. Is this covenant really as strong as you said it was? Said, my heart and my flesh may fail. I may be tempted to doubt, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven and earth but you? There's nothing on earth I desire, I desire besides you, even though there's this temporal promises, you know, at the cost of your soul. But when it comes to heaven, there's only you that can get me there. 
And so he is confessing the power of God to reconcile him. Whom have I in heaven but you? No one. The uh, rhetorical question declares, verse 26, my heart and flesh fail, but God is my strength. He's the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Portion would refer to that inheritance that is granted the individual, something that they did not work to gain, but something that is given to them by virtue of family relationship. What is the inheritance of Jesus Christ given to us? What is the portion that we receive as a born-again individual, someone who follows Christ, a true Christian? Our portion is reconciliation with the Father, communion with Him, transformation unto holiness, eternal life, and the reclamation of the original intent of our created purpose in the very first place when we will be ushered into glory to appreciate to the nth degree every bit of what our soul and body was designed for, to give Him glory forever and without end. Appreciating the beauty that is indescribable, this side of glory overflowing to the manifest praise of His great name where no sun is needed because of the refulgence of His majesty. And food does not have to be cultivated because it spills over from the tree of life. And every vision of a beautiful sunset is eclipsed by that which echoes from the crystal seas. This is our portion. This is our portion. This is our eternal reward. Finally, he says in his doxology that closeness to the Lord is of the highest premium. That's the most valuable at all of all. Notice two words, far and near, juxtaposed, verse 27 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Praise the Lord. Whatever trial and temptation, whatever circumstance and situation, whatever devolving you know, environment of wicked pagan culture that God has placed us in, we can trust. If these things drive us to the sanctuary and cause us to cling closer to our Lord and further from the sin that, as we studied last week, would easily entangle us, weight us down, it is worth it. It is worth it. We have a portion that the enemy cannot take away and no one in this world could ever hope to supply. There is no competitor with the promises of the eternal covenant forged in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Let us remember this today that we may stand in the day of adversity. Would you close your eyes and we'll pray. Dear Lord, we are so thankful for the compassionate, devotional, corrective discipline that is available through your word. We thank you. We see the marks, your fingerprints of your Spirit's inspiration all over this text. This psalmist doesn't extol his great soundness of mind. He doesn't champion his great exploits. He doesn't paint himself in glorious picture of successful, godly man. Instead, he admits his sin and he turns to his Savior. May we follow suit that our life might mirror your word, recognizing our great deficiencies but also the great sufficiency of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we do so, as we enter the sanctuary, as we embrace your means, Lord, give us the grace through these tools to stand ready, armed, 
unassailable, taking ground in this day of encroaching darkness, that you might preserve for yourself a church of whom it is said by promise in your scripture the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Make us members, living stones, fitted into this edifice to grace and by your grace to the glory of your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.